Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Joseph Kearney and Thomas Merrill, authors of the book Lakefront, Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. So first off, let's all establish our Chicago bona fides. I did not grow up in Chicago. I currently live in Evanston, but my mother was a Southsider. Joseph, in fact, she she grew up pretty near you. Could you talk a little bit about your Chicago background? And then we'll move to Thomas. Sure. I'm from the far south side of Chicago, having grown up near 101st and Western. Went to high school much closer to downtown at St. Ignatius. Went away for college and law school, but came back and practiced law for about six years in my hometown where I had the great good fortune of meeting Tom Merrill, who was already a professor at Northwestern and of counsel to Sidley and Austin, the firm where I worked. And Thomas, how about you? I uh, grew up in Iowa, but I went to law school at the University of Chicago and ended up coming back to Chicago after uh, clerking, uh, practiced at Sidley and Austin, as Joe mentioned, for uh, a considerable time, uh, first full-time and then as of counsel. And I taught at Northwestern Law School for over 22 years. So my uh, experience in Chicago was basically during my uh, professional life. Now, anyone who has not physically been to Chicago may have heard about the Great Lakes, like Michigan in particular, or the lakefront, and you may have an idea in your mind about what a lake is. Most people who I've brought to the lakefront, the first thing they say in shock is, oh, I thought you'd be able to see the other side. You cannot. Lake Michigan from the Chicago lakefront looks like the ocean, except freshwater. And it is one of the most significant features of the city. But after having read your book, I find it pretty amazing that we arrived at the lakefront we have today. And it's a long and winding history. And I'd love to get into it with you guys. First off, I'd love to define a term that appears again and again in the book. And Thomas, I'm going to go to you for this. It's riparian rights or riparian rights. Could you talk about what that is and how that impacted the lakefront? Sure. Riparian rights basically just refer to the rights of people that have land that uh, abuts a body of water. It could be a river. It could be a lake. It could be the ocean. In the case of Chicago, that means anybody that owned land up and down the shore of Lake Michigan also had riparian rights. Riparian rights were a kind of a bundle of rights that included, you know, the right to uh, have access to the water, to use the water, to view the water, rights to any accretions to the land that might uh, happen because of the actions of the water, uh, you know, uh, bringing material up onto the land. So, uh, and these were regarded as very significant property rights. Um, uh, land that had access to water, particularly navigable waters, was always uh, considered more valuable than uh, landlocked land. And so the riparian rights were significant. And over the course of the history we describe, people that were engaged in various activities like landfilling in the lake uh, had, to, had to take account of these riparian rights. And landfilling is something that's very significant to understand if you want to know about the development of the city of Chicago. Joseph, can you talk a little bit about what landfilling meant and how it altered the coastline, essentially, of the lake? 
So it's probably helpful to distinguish between a couple of different ways in which the land along the shoreline of Chicago would have been augmented. Some of it would have been through a natural process of accretion in which the land expanded because of the nature of the current of the lake. This accounts for some of the additions, particularly immediately north of the Chicago River in the area that today we call Streeterville. Some of the addition of land would have been simply through man-made projects, either ones that were unlawful or at least not explicitly authorized by law. There was some of that by entities as different as Captain Streeter north of the river to an extent uh, some of the activities of the Illinois Central Railroad along the south side. And then the third sort of landfill would have been that which often the legislature explicitly authorized. And that might have been by the park districts that accounts for a fair amount of the land that we currently think pretty well to be natural in terms of when we look at it, Lincoln Park and Burnham Park and areas on both the north and the south sides of the city, but also some of the landfill that entities such as the railroad or even some private landowners would have made. So it's useful, I think, to distinguish among those various things. Of course, things could go in the other direction. Land could wash away, whether it would be avulsion or erosion. And that actually explains why the land that we now know as Grant Park south of the river was in such peril in the 1850s when the Illinois legislature and then the Common Council made the fateful decision to allow the railroad to come in over the lake. And that was that was a shock seeing an image in the book of the railroad tracks, literally not in the middle of the lake, but it, it water surrounded on all sides, uh, on either side of the railroad tracks, which ironically ended up protecting it during the Great Chicago Fire. But another thing that I think I should help our listeners who are not in the Illinois region out with is I have run into any number of people not from this region who assume that because Chicago is the largest city in Illinois and the most well-known, that must be the capital. It is not. The capital of Illinois is in Springfield. And there have been at numerous times throughout the state's history and the state, it became a state in 1818, And Chicago really started booming, it sounds like from your book, in the 1840s. There's been a tension between the city of Chicago and its high-powered business interests and then the interests of everyone who's downstate, everyone south of Chicago. So can you talk a little bit about the tensions that arose at some various points between the state of Illinois' interests and the city of Chicago's interests. Yes, uh, one of the more dramatic uh, episodes that we recount has to do with the fact that it was quite apparent to people in Chicago as early as the, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, right after the Civil War, that the 
the harbor in the Chicago River uh, was uh, grossly inadequate. It was extraordinarily congested uh, with boats. Chicago had become sort of the westernmost port uh, in the chain of the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, commerce would go up the, the Hudson River and across the Erie Canal and then across the Great Lakes. And Chicago was the western terminus of that. And, and the only place where a boat could dock or land was in the Chicago River. So it was great, very congested. So people kind of all assumed that what was needed was to expand the harbor of Chicago by building a harbor in the lake itself. And uh, various factions, various uh, speculators started agitating for permission to build this outer harbor. As you've already mentioned, the Illinois Central Railroad was sitting on trestles uh, in the lake, and it was extremely threatened by uh, these proposals. So you had, uh, starting in 1867 and culminating in 1869, a variety of proposals for different people to be able to build this outer harbor. The one contestant prominent in Chicago was the Chicago City Council. They wanted to get authority from the state to build this outer harbor. What that meant in practice was that they would probably enter into leases with various private entities. And of course, then the aldermen would profit by directing who would get these leases and who wouldn't. The Illinois Central was threatened by this, and, and they were quite clever. They hired a master lobbyist, a guy named Alonzo Mack, who planted the idea in the downstate legislators, everybody outside of the counties, Cook County and surrounding counties of Chicago, that this was really not in the interest of downstate uh, legislators or, or downstate people because the aldermen would be enriched by giving them the authority to build an outer harbor, but it would do nothing for the people downstate. So why don't you give the, the grant to the Illinois Central Railroad to build the outer harbor? The, the railroad will have to pay a 7% of its revenues uh, to the state as a tax, and that money can be used by people throughout the state for various projects that they prefer. So this statute that was finally passed, called it's colloquially known as the Lakefront Steel of 1869, was almost entirely a fight between Chicagoans, including the politicians in Chicago who wanted the right to build an outer harbor, and the Illinois Central uh, allied with the downstate legislators who wanted the railroad to get the entitlement because that would be in the interest of people downstate as opposed to the people in Chicago. So that's that's a very dramatic instance of a fight between downstate and, and the city of Chicago. In that case, it was won by the downstaters. That was a very transitory victory because it was undone four years later. But that's probably the most dramatic instance of tension between downstate and Chicago that is in the book. And one of the things that makes this book such a good candidate for the Modern Law Library is you both you looked into so many of these cases that ended up deciding what portions of the lake could be used and how. But I have to say, as a reader going through it, it never seemed like there was a coherent case law with absolutes that would provide very clear direction. Often it seemed more like cases were being decided for purposes of, you know, pragmatism for the moment. And one of the ironies is that it seems like a lot of these battling court cases ended up stalling certain developments long enough for the land to come to be seen as belonging to the public and should be used for public purposes. And that's when I, I want to get to the public trust part of your subtitle. You know, you talk about public trust and private rights in Chicago. And these 
sometimes we're dueling, sometimes the rights of the private landowners who owned land right on the shores of the lake ended up redounding to the benefit of the average citizen. Joe, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that balance between the public trust and private rights and why you and Tom felt that was the angle at which you needed to view this. So let me mention first the public trust aspect of this, because I view the public trust and the private rights as both in their own different ways contributing to the lakefront we have today, as opposed to the courts really trying to always strike a balance between them. Your remark about the courts seeming to adopt doctrines or make decisions that were practical for the moment at hand, or the courts sometimes deciding things at a rate that obstructed development seems to me quite right. And the public trust doctrine is a good example of that on both ends. Its origins may be in the more distant past. Some say that it goes back to Roman law, but all agree that it is the 1892 Illinois Central Railroad versus Illinois case from the United States Supreme Court. We call it the lakefront case after the fashion of the late 19th century that announced the modern public trust doctrine. And it was a doctrine that Justice Stephen Field of the Supreme Court, I can't say quite invented, but announced largely, we think, because it was the most available means for defeating what was a very strong argument by the railroad under the contracts clause of the Constitution that the 1869 grant by the legislature was a vested right that could not be abrogated. So it had to do at that time with preserving access to navigable waters for the purpose of fishing and navigation. And so it remained for the next 75 or so years when it was not a terribly consequential doctrine. The legislature was regarded as the trustee of the public trust. So while the 1869 grant was defeated on this basis, even there, in a sense, it was respecting the legislature's action since the legislature had repealed that grant in 1873. And not until 1970, when the Illinois Supreme Court decided an inland case involving whether a school building could be built in Washington Park on the south side, did the public trust doctrine take its modern form? It's very elusive still today precisely what the doctrine covers. Does it only cover formerly submerged lands? Does it cover certain parks? Uh, Does it cover all parks? Those are things that I want to leave aside for the moment, simply in favor of saying that in more recent years, whether it's been the Lucas Museum fight in particular in, say, 2014 to 2016, or even the Obama Presidential Center litigation that is ongoing, the effort of individuals or non-government organizations to contest grants of land in court 
have tended to be successful somewhat less on the merits altogether and somewhat more because it has impeded the development for a while until such time as the developer, this was true with Loyola University in, the, in 1990, and it was true with George Lucas a few years ago, or the government forces uh, sort of weary of the whole thing and move on. So a lot of the success, if you will, of the public trust doctrine in modern years is less attributable to the merits of the doctrine and more attributable to the costs and uncertainty and delays in litigation. And we should be clear, again, for anyone who doesn't know Chicago, there are public museums um, and other buildings, uh, the Soldier Field, the large stadium, that have been built on lakefront lands. But then there'll be times like with the George Lucas Museum, and that's George Lucas of Star Wars, who ask for permission to build on that land and are told, no, you are not able to. So one thing well he was first told yes that's true the state legislature and the city council and the chicago park district only to be told no by a non-government organization uh, the friends of the parks which went to court and did not prevail ultimately on the merits because while it secured an interim victory, the ultimate result was because Lucas, wearied of the whole thing, Chicago is his wife's hometown, uh, not his, and now the museum is being constructed in Los Angeles. Although, as you mentioned, the Obama uh, presidential library discussion is, is ongoing. Other things that are ongoing, just this past month in the news, we've heard a lot about the city council debating whether to rename Lakeshore Drive, which is the large, I think it's eight lane road that follows the current coastline of the lake. And it's been argued that it should be renamed to Dusab. So that's another thing that's ongoing. You mentioned in the book, it's not the first time that that road has been renamed. So there is just really a whole host of issues that arise when it comes to the lakefront, buildings on the lake, roads on the lake, whether we're going to increase the size of the city by filling in part of the lake. And that's, it's just, it's really fascinating to me that the whole book, the things you get into, one of the things I enjoyed was meeting some of the real characters in Chicago history. You mentioned a little bit earlier Captain Streeter. We have to talk a little bit about George Wellington Streeter. I encourage anyone listening, when you get a chance, Google a picture of him. He just looks like a rascal, and it's it's pretty delightful. Tom, could you talk a little bit about Captain Streeter, George Wellington Streeter, and how he came to have a Chicago neighborhood named after him? <laughs> well, the area is today called Streeterville. There's a statute of uh, George Wellington Streeter at McClure Court uh, right in the middle of it. Uh, Captain Streeter was, I guess you'd say, the ultimate uh, rapscallion. He, his claim, which was later written up in a supposed autobiography, was that uh, he and one of his wives were testing a boat out, allegedly to transport guns to Latin America, and uh, they were co- coming from Milwaukee down to Chicago, and they suddenly grounded on a sandbar, which uh, was not shown on any of the navigational maps. 
and he he pronounced, uh, according to his own account, that uh, uh, this was he had discovered new land, uh, and therefore he was entitled to claim this as his own. So the the boat, it's called the Rutan, uh, remained uh, stuck on the sandbar, and Streeter enlisted a few scruffy followers to join him, and then they started engaging in some landfill to expand the land and so forth. But astonishingly enough, he remained in this area in one sort of makeshift uh, structure or another, really from the late 1880s all all the way up to his death. I think it was around uh, 1918 or so. The owners of the nearest solid land who had designs on, you know, claiming this, uh, this land for themselves engaged in kind of sort of slow and irregular combat with Streeter and his followers over this period of time. They would periodically hire private detectives to invade the land and try to oust Streeter, and he would fight back. At one point, there was actually a gun battle between Streeters uh, and his followers and these detectives, which uh, resulted in the death of one of the uh, detectives. And Streeter's uh, ability, he was a very wily rascal. His ability to defend himself in court was part of his great success. I think he had a lot of populist appeal, so he defended himself against murder charges and eventually got it reduced to manslaughter and eventually got sprung out of the state penitentiary after only serving one year and so forth. So uh, he was he was a continual presence on the lakefront for a long period of time, which kind of stymied develop of the development of this area. A uh, very interesting uh, figure. One of the things we uncover in our book is that it was not just Streeter and his gang of, of squatters who were fighting against the supposed uh, real owners of this land, the people that had riparian rights, to revert back to the phrase, along St. Clair Avenue. But there were other contestants for this land, too, that uh, tried to gain title to it. One group of uh, speculators who had acquired some script from the federal government that they claimed authorized them to claim the land. And then the Potawatomi Indians, or a branch of the Potawatomi Indians, living in St. Joseph, Michigan, claimed that uh, that this new formed land was not covered by the treaties in which they had relinquished their claims to the land around Chicago to the federal government, and therefore they were entitled to this new land. So it was kind of a four-way fight. It counts for the fact that Streeterville really was very late in developing. The rest of Chicago around Streeterville developed much more quickly, and it was not until this sort of extreme uncertainty about this uh, new land that had emerged was resolved that uh, Streeterville really started developing. One of the things I found funny, we talked earlier about the conflict between the state and the city, and you mentioned it it could have been argued that the state of Illinois had a very strong claim to this land and could have stepped in and done something about it, and they just weren't interested. They seemed to feel that this wasn't a problem that they wanted to jump in the middle of. That's right. I mean, we think of uh, the state government today and really all governments at all levels as having, you know, a, a fairly established apparatus, bureaucracies, different departments, different agencies, and so forth. But the reality is that the state of Illinois was a pretty skeletal operation until well into the 20th century. And so the courts had ruled that the state really owned the submerged land under Lake Michigan, and the state had a legal claim, therefore, to uh, at least part of the Streeterville additions of land, the one, the illegal additions by Streeter and, and others. But the state never made a claim for that, never inter- interceded to make such a claim. It's interesting that we have to have a different conception of, of what government's capacity is when we look at the 19th century and as opposed to today. 
Another element I think we really need to get into when we talk about the lakefront of, of Lake Michigan is the environmental one. There are two periods I'm interested in discussing when it comes to that. One is the period during which I was decided to reverse the flow of the Chicago River so that it wasn't draining into Lake Michigan. It's one of my favorite Chicago facts to tell people, aside from the fact we dye the river green every St. Patrick's Day, is that we actually reversed the flow. And the other is when really in the 60s and 70s, environmental concerns started to really come to the forefront of people's minds. So first, there's a long chapter in the book all about the decision to reverse the flow of the Chicago River. But one of the cases that I found really interesting was what arose after this was done. And it was done for sanitary reasons, because Lake Michigan is the source of drinking water for most of the city. And when everyone's putting sewage into the water, and then that sewage goes from the river into Lake Michigan, no one's drinking clean water, there are diseases. And so the brilliant idea was made, okay, we're going to reverse the flow of the river. It's going to carry it away from Lake Michigan. Great. Large cities downstream of this didn't love the thought that they were now going to be receiving a large portion of Chicago's waste. Could you talk a little bit about the fight between St. Louis and Chicago? Joe, I'll kick this to you. It is true that the larger cities downstream of the river once reversed did not love the idea. The challenges that they faced included from the perspective of Joliet and Peoria that the Illinois legislature had authorized this really before those cities appreciated the downside from their perspective. The fact that the project also was known as the Sanitary and Ship Canal may have given some impression that there would be benefits in terms of establishing a Lake Michigan to the Gulf waterway that would redound to those cities' advantages. The big opposition, as you say, ultimately came from St. Louis and on its behalf, the state of Missouri. It too got organized a little bit late and it proceeded to file a lawsuit, Illinois being the primary defendant, Missouri being the primary plaintiff, in the Supreme Court of the United States under the court's original jurisdiction, which is rarely used, but it is the means that the Constitution provides for resolving disputes between states, uh, lest they go to war, uh, perhaps would be the theory. and. Missouri requested an injunction against the project, but by the time that got before the court and filed, the canal had been opened and the flow was going backwards away from the lake uh, toward the uh, Displains and the Illinois rivers into the Mississippi basin. And the court denied the preliminary injunction. It appointed a special master to sort things out. Uh, that took uh, some time. And by the time, six years or so later, that the court was deciding the merits of the matter, the river reversal was a fact. And 
the court's solution was more toward pointing St. Louis and other downstate entities to establish filtration plants as opposed to undoing this massive public works project. And Tom, could you talk a little bit about the environmental drives that began really in the 70s, the 60s and 70s, as people started really contemplating what harm may be being done to the lake or the river? Yeah, one of the striking things about the history is that there is a very clear pivot around the year 1970 in terms of public attention shifting from viewing the lake in kind of very practical utilitarian terms. You know, the lake is for shipping, the lake is for fishing, to um, viewing the lake as an environmental amenity, as a, a place for recreation, as a place for preserving a large body of fresh water. And this was part of a national movement. And 1970 was when the first Earth Day occurred on April 22nd, 1970, which was a kind of spontaneous almost um, uprising across the country in support of greater environmental protection and greater respect for natural resources. And you can you can easily trace the influence of this new perspective in, in Illinois. Uh, partly, the politicians picked it up and began seeking greater environmental protection. The Attorney General of Illinois, a guy named William Scott, he's a Republican, interestingly enough, and he was trying to garner enough support to get the nomination for the Senate of the United States. And one of his uh, platforms was that he was the champion of the environment. He brought all sorts of lawsuits against uh, steel mills for polluting and against Milwaukee for dumping sewage in Lake Michigan. And he brought a big lawsuit challenging the idea of expanding the landfill for the U.S. steel plant on the south shore of Chicago, the south, the south Mill down at the southern end of the city of Chicago, and invoked the public trust doctrine in support of uh, blocking this proposal. So there was a shift in public opinion. There was a shift among the politicians, and the courts uh, responded accordingly to kind of remake the public trust doctrine as, as a kind of a doctrine that would assist in preservation of, uh, of Lake Michigan and the shore of Lake Michigan as opposed to viewing the lake in sort of utilitarian terms. And the public sentiment becomes, in in respect, in many respects, at least a segment of public sentiment becomes much more adamant about the importance of environmental protection. The diversion of the Chicago, of the river, making it flow backwards rather than forwards into the lake, uh, was very upsetting to a lot of people in later years. Uh, They thought this was an unnatural diversion of the waters of Lake Michigan and should be stopped. And so today we have an interstate compact that prevents any diversions except the Chicago diversion from taking place without the unanimous consent of all the states surrounding the Great Lakes. And the public trust doctrine is sort of enlisted as this sort of preservationist doctrine, the idea being that we don't want any more landfilling in the lake, we don't want any more uh, of that sort of stuff going on, which changes the tenor of the law significantly. But it's in response to a change in public attitudes and, and political attitudes reflecting a public sentiment. Now, we've discussed the public trust section of this, but some of the private individuals who wound up having a huge impact on the way the lakefront developed, I would love to get into them. So, A major figure here is Aaron Montgomery Ward. And Montgomery Ward is probably a name familiar to my listeners, but I didn't know anything about the man before reading this book. Could you talk a little bit about Aaron Montgomery Ward and what he had to do with the development of the Chicago Lakefront? So Montgomery Ward was the inventor, it's not too much to say, of 
the mail order catalog, which revolutionized merchandising in the United States in the late 19th century. And he operated, along with his partner, from a building along Michigan Avenue, right across from what was then known as Lake Park, now as Grand Park, although as one judge characterized it at the time, it was more of a mud hole. And Ward enjoyed, as other owners did along Michigan Avenue, a right of private property, somewhat confusingly known as the public dedication doctrine, which enabled them to sue in state court to enjoin construction of any buildings east of Michigan Avenue. This was possible because there were notations on various plats or maps of the land from earlier in the 19th century. Some of these notations having been made by the United States government, others by individuals who were marketing land west of Michigan Avenue to the effect that the land to the east would be forever vacant of buildings or words along those lines. They varied from time to time in the various maps. So it was the public dedication doctrine, but it was this private right that enabled Ward to contest buildings. While the Art Institute went up without his opposition, the Burnham Plan and other major significant initiatives of the city government in the 1890s involved plans to build, among other things, this is now to get into the early 20th century, the Field Museum of Natural History and the Crayar Library in various places in what by then had been renamed Grant Park. And Ward was wealthy and dogged, and he went to court repeatedly to the Illinois Supreme Court, the cases went on four different occasions, and by increasingly slim margins, uh, but in each case, uh, ultimately, including four to three in the last, he persuaded the Illinois Supreme Court that he had the right to object to the buildings in Grand Park. And that is the reason that the Field Museum went up south of 12th Street in what was then a relatively lonely location. We now know it as Museum Campus. It's been joined by the Adler Planetarium and the Shedd Aquarium and the uh, Soldier Field development. But it was only because of Ward's private property right that Grant Park is without buildings. And as you say in the book, the Chicago lakefront really is the jewel of the city. It is where we have internationally respected museums. It's where people in the city and the suburbs go in the summers, for example, to have recreation or even the winters to you know, skate on the ice skating rink. And it really is the focus of a lot of public life in the city. And we arrived here almost by coincidence, happenstance. Things could have gone another way very easily. But you say we could use 
the experience of Chicago and its lakefront that is this very important public land as a blueprint for decision-making in other areas and other cities. So, Tom, could you talk a little bit about that, what you and Joe hope this book can accomplish when it comes to going forward, helping people take a look at the example of Chicago and be more intentional about what they try and do with their lands? Yeah, it's always difficult to use a complicated uh, history like this as any kind of a pattern or blueprint for other cities. Uh, I, I would point out that the Chicago lakefront, which is extraordinary, it's just a, a fantastic uh, asset for the city, uh, was never planned in any, in any, I mean, there was the there was the plan, you know, of Chicago that uh, Burnham and so forth developed, and that had some influence, but there was never a master plan for the lakefront. It kind of just happened. And, and I think probably the key uh, feature is that Park districts, public entities like park districts were allowed to engage in significant landfilling along the lakefront and to use that for parks and recreational purposes. And so one of the paradoxes here is that the public trust doctrine is frequently now understood or invoked by people as as prohibiting any uh, landfilling in the lake. But the reason why we have this glorious lakefront was that for a long period of time, at least if public entities like park districts were allowed to landfill and create this new land and use it for public purposes like parks and and a highway, that made it possible to have the lakefront that we have today. So we need to have a little bit of um, self-awareness about this. Now, it won't work everywhere. I mean, you you can't landfill a river uh, to the extent that the Chicago uh, lakefront has been uh, subject to landfilling because, you know, there's not enough water to put the kind of significant landfill into a river that there is into Lake Michigan. You start out by pointing out what a vast body of water Lake Michigan is. So there, there's a kind of natural constraint as to how much you can do that way. But I think uh, the fact that internal conflicts prevented uh, various, you know, commercially minded people from building this outer harbor and then the park districts were allowed to engage in landfilling in the area that was supposedly going to be designated for this outer harbor. And, and they did so at a point in time before other interests like condominiums and so forth were able to say, no, please preserve our view of the lake. All that uh, contributed to the, the reality of the lakefront today. They get, we got the public entities involved. They were allowed to do landfilling. And they got it done. They built the parks before sufficient private opposition was able to develop to stop it from happening. Well, Joe and Tom, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Their book, again, is Lakefront, Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book recommendation for me, you can email me at books at abajournal.com.